The rest of us are going to be in Ruth chapter 3 today. Ruth chapter 3. And if you need help finding Ruth's, it's right between Judges and 1 Samuel, which is very appropriate because it's a story of how we move, not only historically, but theologically, from Judges and all the dysfunction and evil there of the land to uh, 1 Samuel with the glories of King David and then eventually King Saul. You know, we like to add value to uh, our services here at FCC, so today we have some useful facts that you might not know. Uh, just a couple here. We could go on because there's so many. But, for example, did you know that the hardened end of a shoelace is called an aglet? Yeah. That will take you far in life. Uh, did you know that hippopotamus comes from the Greek words for river horse? Um, or this one's more interesting, more germane to our point here, though. Did you know that the African impala can jump 30 feet in a leap and over 10 feet high? African impala can jump 30 feet. Now, I'm trying to imagine that. 10 feet, I would reckon, is right about to the bottom of that cross, give or take a foot. And yet, and here's what's more interesting about that, and where we're kind of going to begin directing our minds. And yet the African impala can be kept in a, any pen with a three-foot-high barrier. Now, there is a sermon illustration in that for us, because in the same way, what I'm going to try to bring out is that God has designed us to do things, uh, great and wondrous things, but we are kept from doing those because of a barrier that is far too small that really shouldn't affect us. We're going to see how God works through ordinary people doing incredible things here in the book of Ruth. But what keeps us from doing those ordinary, extraordinary, incredible things sometimes is the same thing that keeps the African impala from exercising its nature and being free. And we will explain what that means here in a few minutes. But let's begin with prayer. Can I ask you, just right now, prepare our hearts to receive his word. This is a story set 3,000 years ago. And yet because God is behind the scenes and God inspired the Holy, or God through the Holy Spirit brought this story to us, these are eternal, timeless truths. These are truths that can change our life this week. And Lord, we pray you do that. We pray that you would bring comfort, perspective, wisdom to us, and also challenge us, God. Help us, please, to receive your word, not only with our head, but with our heart and with our actions, Lord. I pray that you yourself would allow me to speak what pleases you and honors you and what is helpful to us. If I say anything wrong or misguided, help it soon to be forgotten, God. But let your word, let your power, let your principles take hold within our hearts, please. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. Ruth chapter 3. We have been in this book for two weeks uh, already. And I'm going to summarize just because some of us may not have been here for one or two of those. But also, it's just a reminder. It's been a, a week, and there are certain things we want to keep in our mind if we're going to get this book right. And that's not it. Um, <laughs> all right, you got to restart it. That's fine. 
There we go. All right. So, reminder, the story of Ruth is a story of a woman named Naomi who, in a time of famine, goes from Bethlehem and lives over here in Moab. She's married to a man named Elimelech. They have two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they go to the land of Moab, and both those young men marry Moabite girls. And then tragedy happens. Elimelech dies. Chilion dies. Malon dies. And Naomi's left empty. In fact, four times in the first chapter, she interprets the reality of her life as that God's hand is against me. She looks at the circumstances and says, it's pretty clear. I've done something, and God's face is against me. He's actively working against me. Four times she gives some variation of that. Now, we also know that this is a time where you're not going to see any miracles in this book. Like most of the people who lived as God's people, there were seasons of miracles, but this story is not set in one of those times. And God's going to work through the ordinary every day, like he often normally does. And then the names of, of the people in the book carry a lot of symbolism. This first name, Elimelech. You see him right there in the first verse, but then he dies. Now, the reason this is important, because remember, this book is working on different levels. There's an individual level of the people involved, Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech and Boaz. But this is a, a, a instance we see, this is always the case, just sometimes it's more clearly seen, that God is using the ordinary everyday level and the things that people do there as part of this broader second level of how he redeems Israel. And then that's part of his greater story of how he redeems the whole creation, including us. So that's why this name Elimelech, God is King, is I think one of the keys to understanding what's going on in the story. Because if you're reading this in the, in the course of Israel's history, and you come to the last part of the book of Judges, you say, wait, how is God king? I mean, have you read this book of Judges? The people rebel every time. It seems like unless God is actively saving them and, and they're in dis despair, you know, because they need some deliver, as soon as they reach any, any form of, of safety, there's a complacency and a spiritual apostasy that sets in. How can God be king when there's this downward cycle of his people Israel? How can God be king over Israel? And again, the larger question then, all right, if this is God's plan for redeeming the world, it doesn't look like it's going too well. If it's all centered on Israel and Israel's going south, what does that say about how God is reigning over the universe? Now, the reason this is important is because it, in our own life, but also in our world, we don't see often the way God reigns. In fact, to the world, the very fact of, of evil and pain and suffering are marks against that idea that there is a God who reigns. And so this, uh, this story then is going to be focusing on how God does this. And we saw several of these principles. God's at work even when it looks like he's absent. So it's not like God is an absent landlord. He's working and reigning. God is working for us. Even when, like Naomi, it feels like, seems like, he's working against us. God's work interweaves all three levels. God's work is always beyond what we see and understand. We, we kind of focused on that a little bit last week. 
God uses ordinary people to do his work. And then here's where we're going to focus more. God uses ordinary actions to do his work, but especially those of love and sacrifice. And God uses people in ways they will not see or understand. So I put it like this. If there's one thing I want to get across today, it is this. God reigns through ordinary people who act in love. And again, love here has have to be defined biblically. It's not primarily an emotion. It's not an emotional high. Love is when I look at you and say, regardless of what you've done for me or haven't done for me, my heart and my actions are for you, even if it costs me. So there's a, a sacrifice. In fact, there's even a risk in love. There's a risk in love. Because if I give myself to someone, not based on what they've done or what they will do for me, then there is a real chance I will be the loser in that relationship, that I will give but not receive. And that's uh, one of the things you find here in Ruth chapter 3. So let's flush this out a little bit with that background. Chapter 2, we saw that Ruth began to glean in the fields of a man named Boaz. Now, chapter 3 begins, and just reading between the lines of when one, bar, one season starts of harvest and when the wheat and then the barley, uh, this is going to be about two months after chapter 2. So chapter 3, about two months. And one day, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, whose servant girls, with whose servant girls you've been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley over on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume, perfume yourselves. Got my tongue twisted today. And then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let anyone know you are there uh, until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, by the way, you see in Naomi. In the, in the first chapter, she feels God's hand against her. She feels she's empty. But now, here she is showing concern for her daughter. Right from the start, we see this interplay. She's giving an act of love to Ruth. And this might even jeopardize her own fulfillment or things she would want to happen. I mean, think about this. If Boaz does marry Ruth, Ruth is not going to live in Naomi's home anymore. She's going to go to Boaz's house. Would Naomi be welcome there? Who knows? That's a risk that she's willing to take. But she does this because God has begun to stir in her heart again, that he is reigning and he is being good to her. So she says, put on your best clothes. Now, what does this mean? Well, I think in the context what it means is that up till this time she has been wearing the clothes of widowhood, basically. And we know that's a custom in many cultures, even in our own culture, until fairly recently. And, uh, and so she says, all right, time to put that aside. Now, I love this because there is going to be a reality that opens to both of these women, but especially Ruth here. It's very, very different than what she had understood before. She says, it's time. And I want you to go. The men are going to be threshing. They're going to be separating the, the grain from the chaff. You know, it's a, it's a job. It's a big job, but it's very joyful because now you see the fruit of all this labor. They're going to be allowed to be eating. They'll probably be, you know, drinking. doesn't say he's, he's smashed or anything, but there's, there's probably, you know, some beer or wine 
involved. So he's, he's going to lay down. It's going to be in a good mood. And that's when you go. <laughs> and, uh, and here's how you make yourself known. You put on these, this good clothes, so your wedding clothes, but then I want you to go and lay down at his feet and, uh, and then uncover his feet. By the way, if we don't get the idea right about why this book is written in, and recorded here, we're going to go way off the trails on, on how to interpret these things. I was just reading last night this guy uh, giving advice from the book of Ruth to singles on how to find your Boaz, you know, or how to find your Ruth. And one of the things they were talking, one of the things this guy was talking about is this. Remember, your, your Ruth may be right there in front of you, and you might not know it, and you just like Ruth was there at his feet. And, no, that's not what's going on here. The point of the story is not to give us marital advice, okay? This is not a, 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 a primer on how to find a husband or a wife, okay? Break into their house or somewhere they'll be staying, lay down at their feet, uncover their feet, and then wake up. They'll tell you what to do, right? No, that's not what you should do. There's a bigger principle here involved. And she does it, though. And Ruth says, I'll do whatever you say. I can't imagine what's going through her mind. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Uh, presumably, it was to either get a good start in the morning or to protect all this new grain and supplies from uh, animals or thieves. Anyway, he lays down on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Uh, Ruth, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startles the man. So it's probably his, his feet are cold. Maybe he hears something or feels something. And he, look at my feet are uncovered. He reaches down to cover up his feet, and there's a woman there. And you can imagine what's going through his mind, you know. Well, this is new. Um, you know, it's dark. He can tell it's a woman, but he doesn't know who she is. Who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Now, what did Naomi tell her to do? All that she's done so far, and then she said, the man will tell you what to do, right? Ruth doesn't do that. This is the one case where you see her not obeying her mother-in-law because she's going beyond that. Instead, Ruth takes the initiative. And we're going to see it's a risky initiative at this. She says to Boaz, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, what's happening here? Well, she's already made herself known by her actions that she is available for marriage. But that's not just what Ruth is looking for, although that's what Naomi was talking about. Ruth is something deeper in mind. She has heard through Naomi or other people, that there is this practice in Israel of a kinsman redeemer redeeming a family that was on the brink of extinction. Now, remember here, you know, the, the customs of that time were very different. Uh, the land was, was very important, tied to a family. But also, this is a time where God had not yet revealed the resurrection. There were hints of it here and there in the book of Job and some of the Psalms, which are going to come later. But for the most people, the way that you would live on is through your descendants living in this land, not only genetically, but also this is your place in the land. They, they, they keep your memory here. They keep your literal place within the, within the land of Israel because your name is tied to this. But that's threatened here. 
right? Elimelech, who has this portion of land and is this family, is dead. His two sons are dead. They lived with these Moabite girls for 10 years and they were barren. And when this family line is about to go extinct, all you have is, is an older woman and then her, her younger daughter-in-law. And yet Ruth understands something. She has known by now in these months that she's learned that God has provided a way. And it's a beautiful way for that family name to continue. And that is if someone is willing not only to marry this young woman, Ruth, but also to act as a kinsman redeemer. So a kinsman redeemer or a kinsman guardian, as some of your translations might put it, was someone, it was a kinsman, it was in the clan, probably second, third cousin, second or, or something like that, maybe beyond that, but who would buy the land, but also as part of that, marry the widow. And here's how that worked then. The land he would be able to use, but by buying the widow, the offspring of that union, if it was a male, would then have the family name and be the legal descendant of the person who had died, the man who had died. And when they came of age, uh, 14 or so, they would take that land without, without any further ado. That was their family inheritance. And they would continue then that family name on that family plot. That's what is meant by this whole concept of redeeming and being a kinsman redeemer. Now, in this case, what this means is this. Um, Ruth is asking Boaz, not only, she's not only saying I'm available for marriage, if you're interested, by the way. She's saying this, I want you, I want you to fulfill your duty as a, or your duty, that's a strong word, because he didn't have to do this. I want you to be the kinsman redeemer. And what that would mean is that she, he would not only marry this woman, but he would buy the land associated with Elimelech's name. And then whatever child he might have through Ruth, if it was a male child, that male child would then take possession of that land. He would lose whatever he, money he had put into that. And that child would, would perpetuate the name of Elimelech in this case. Here's what's happening. Ruth is rejecting the easy way in the way that seems most in her self-interest. I mean, what's it to this Moabite young widow if Elimelech's family name continues on his family plot? She needs a husband. And the easiest way would just be to say, you know, marry me. I'm available. She probably saw an attraction there already by his kindness and generosity to her. But no. She's not going to be content with that. She's going to risk something. Because by setting it up this way, she is complicating the relationship. And very well, he may say no. In fact, we're going to see chapter 4. There's another kinsman who's closer as the first right, and he does say no. Because it would, as you put it, endanger his own inheritance. She's risking something. She is risking her own happiness to bring fulfillment to Naomi, but also the family line of Elimelech. And that's why in verse 10, Boaz looks at her and says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, this kindness. She, you showed kindness to Naomi earlier, but this kindness is even greater than that which you showed to her. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Apparently he thought she could have you know, her choice of young men. You haven't married for passion or, or for wealth. 
you have married and, and sought this as part of this kinsman redeemer. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask, all you ask. So he means the whole package deal. All my fellow townsmen know you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am of a nearer kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Now, Boaz too is going to risk. As we're going to see, this is a complicated affair that could endanger his own investment and even the own inheritance he would pass on to his children. You say, what happens? Well, we're not told that Boaz has another wife. We're not told he has any other sons. I, I'm reading between this that because of that silence, because of the way the narrative works, that he, he probably doesn't. So that means if this first if they have a, a boy, a son, that first son would not only take back the land that Boaz would have to pay good money for as part of this exchange, but here's the further risk. If they didn't have any more sons to carry out Boaz's name, because the first one would have a Limelech's name, then that child would also gain the inheritance of his land. Um, or, um, and again, there are other complications here as well. Boaz, too, is willing to risk something. Boaz, too, is willing to act in love, even against his perceived self-interests. God reigns through the ordinary actions of everyday people, but especially those actions that are given in this kind of love. It is a risky faith. It's a faith that trusts. I remember this is a kind of righteousness that maybe I didn't grasp when I was younger. I grew up in a church where the righteousness was entirely negative and passive. Now, that sounds critical, but what I mean is negative meant the things you didn't do, all right? So I grew up in a church where to be righteous before God, uh, you didn't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do, basically, right? Um, in this church, you didn't go to movies. Men had short hair. The women had dresses. You had the King James Bible. Uh, you didn't listen to rock music. You really didn't go to watch much TV. There are a whole list of things and, and focus and emphasis and preaching on the things you weren't supposed to do because the kind of righteousness they perceived was a negative thing of, of things you avoided. And here we see a righteousness note that God blesses of a righteous man and woman who risk their own self-interest for the right and the good of other people. That's what God blesses. So you see the rest of this chapter here. Uh, he says, stay here in the morning. Um, and instead, when, when she, it's time to leave in the early morning dawn, before probably she could be recognized, he loads up her, her shawl with grain and says, take it to Naomi. Don't go back to your mother empty. And, uh, and she brings it to her mother, and, and, the Lord, and Naomi says, bless you, my daughter. Let me, let me tell you something. That man is not going to rest until he settles this today. You won't have to wait long. All right, let's come back to this idea then. God reigns through ordinary people who act in love. Did you know, did you know that the Africa Impala can jump 30 feet across and 10 feet high? You might have known that, right? Because uh, we just talked about it, but he can be kept in an enclosure with a three-foot wall. Let's come back to that. Why? 
Because the African Impala will not leap unless he or she knows and can see where their feet will land. This isn't just about Impalas, right? There are things God calls us to do, to act in, in love and help towards other people that if you get involved in and you put yourself into, it is not going to be clear to you how that will enhance your own self-fulfillment. Self it will not be clear to you how it will bless you somehow. In fact, it may not be clear to you where you're going to land in this. If I put myself in this situation, if I start this ministry, if I show unconditional love to my spouse or to someone else in this sacrificial way, what's that going to look like? How will it affect me? And the question is, are we going to be like that Apollo that won't exercise this nature and leap the way that God gloriously designed it to do? Or are we going to be like Ruth and Boaz who are willing to let the future be unsettled and unknown by acting in love and sacrifice? I don't know where that finds you. You may be in school. You may have friends that need your kind of, of help and guidance, but, but man, you know, it, it could be a sticky situation. We could jeopardize our own status sometimes by who we associate with. I remember when I was in middle school, I think I was seventh and eighth grade, and we had just moved to this area, moved from Colorado to, uh, to Iowa. And so I, I didn't have any friends, went to the school, and uh, it was right in the middle of the school year. And there were already cliques and, you know, people established. And there, there was one kid, though, that, uh, you know, I, I, he was kind of cool. I liked hanging out with him. But he was a little bit weird. His name was Roger. And Roger was uh, the first Trekkie I had ever met. And what I meant by that was he, is, he was obsessed with Star Wars. And back then, of course, it was just the series with, you know, Will and Shatner playing Captain Kirk and all that. Uh, but he was obsessed. In fact, he would come to school dressed in a Star Wars, um, Star Trek uniform, you know, the shirt and the boots and the, yeah, yeah, you didn't do that back when I was growing up, okay? You, I don't know if you can get away with it today or not. I'm not up on that. You couldn't do it back then. There was no one lower on the social scene than Roger. But I, I, I actually got to know him a little bit and spent some time with him. And, and it, he was, okay, he was a little bit obsessed with that, but he was a pretty cool guy. He was a smart guy. And here, here's, I gave up on that relationship because I perceived that it would drag down whatever social standing I might have. It's not like I was at the top of the heap, believe me. I was in the bottom half. But maybe I could go a little bit higher if I wasn't associated with him. Now, I regret that decision. I look back on it. I mean, that was a long time ago. I'm not going to beat myself up. I was a seventh or eighth grader and, you know, just moved into a new area. Wasn't even a believer at that point. Uh, or really not much of one. But maybe you're in a place like that. Or maybe there's a place where it would be much easier to cut yourself off from some relationship and just do the bare minimum instead of actually giving yourself fully in love and involvement to that person. Because it looks like it's going to be messy if you do. There's some ministry, some way that you feel God might be calling you to serve him, to reach out, in the world. And it, it's going to be a lot of work. 
It's going to be some messiness. And who knows if it would actually turn out well in the first place. If God's putting that on your heart, can we say, do I want to be like Ruth? Do I want to be like an Apollo that hides their true nature because they're afraid of where they might land? I get that for an animal. It's part of their nature. But for us, we live with a God who reigns, don't we? And if we believe that, if we believe he will reign, that means he will not only provide for my true needs, but he will use my true acts of service and love and risk in this way. God is king. And the way he exercises that kingship is not by these pronouncements and and bolts of fire from the sky, but through the everyday, ordinary acts of love, selfless giving for the good of another through his people.